Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. In uncertain times, students seek truth. Your donation brings the Catholic intellectual tradition to elite universities. Act by December 31st, and your gift doubles, matched by up to $100,000. Go to ThomisticInstitute.org forward slash light of truth to illuminate minds this Christmas. That's ThomisticInstitute.org forward slash light of truth. All right, so I begin on the handout with a quotation from uh, a philosopher from the 20th century, Wilfred Sellers. Okay. Uh, Wilfred Sellers, uh, he was an American philosopher, um, one of the most prominent philosophers in the English-speaking world in the 20th century, and I like how he defines philosophy. So I'm just going to I'm going to read this quote to you, and I'm going to talk about what it has to tell us. Okay, so quoting Wilfred Sellers. The aim of philosophy, abstractly formulated, is to understand how things in the broadest possible sense of the term hang together in the broadest possible sense of the term. Under things in the broadest possible sense, I include such radically different items as not only cabbages and kings, but numbers and duties, possibilities and finger snaps, aesthetic experience and death. To achieve success in philosophy would be to use a contemporary turn of phrase to know one's way around with respect to all these things, and not in that unreflective way in which the centipede of the story knew its way around before it faced the question, how do I walk? But in that reflective way, which means that no intellectual holds are barred. Okay, end quote. All right, so, uh, so, so according to Sellers, and we're going to see as we go on uh, in, in the discussion, according to Plato, too, uh, what philosophy does is it, it understand, tries to understand how things in the broadest possible sense of thing hang together in the broadest possible sense of hangs together. Okay? And you know, he lists interesting things among things, right? So cabbages and kings, numbers, duties, finger snaps, right? Uh, hallucinations, life, death. Right? All these things are things. These are all things that we can say true things about. And Sellers thinks the work of the philosophers to figure out how we would put our understanding of all those things together into a single coherent story. Okay. Um, and so I think like in, in Sellers' particular way of thinking about it, what he has in mind here is when historians do what historians do, they're going to operate under a basic set of assumptions, right? They're going to operate under a basic method of doing history, okay? Uh, if you go to your, your history class and you say they're your professor of history, hey, well, how do we know that, that the world's been around longer than five seconds, right? Like, how do we know that there's actually been a past or something like that? Your history professor might say, that's kind of cute. I'm glad you're asking <laughs> questions, uh, okay? But that's not what we do here. <laughs> okay, we have to begin with like an assumption that a past happened, right? Okay. Uh, if you go to your chemistry class, right, 
And you ask, you ask your uh, chemistry professor, yeah, but is there, is there really water, right? You know, or, you know, why would we, why would we even take up the scientific method in the first place? Your chemistry professor might be intrigued and, you know, thank you for trying to participate, but say that's just not what we're doing. Okay, so these disciplines have to begin someplace, right? It's just, this is perfect. It's not a liability of this, right? They have to begin someplace. They have to start out with a method. They have to start out with maybe some unstated assumptions about the way things are. Okay? And, um, but at some point, your history professor, your chemistry professor, might want to have a sense of what they have to do with each other. Okay? How do history and chemistry, as Sellers put it, hang together? Right? How can we put history and chemistry into a coherent story? Okay? And if you think of it, what's going on there, when, you're, when your historian and your chemist get together to ask, okay, what, what does chemistry have to do with history and what does history have to do with chemistry? They're not doing history and they're not doing chemistry, right? They're gonna have to like take their basic assumptions and set them out and look at them critically, right? They have to step outside of chemistry and talk about chemistry and step outside of history and talk about history and try to have this perspective that makes sense of both of them at once, okay? At that point, you would say, they're moving from something like chemistry or history to the philosophy of chemistry, or the philosophy of history, okay? By taking that, taking these two separate things and looking at what would unify them from a broader perspective, right, is the movement away from the special disciplines and towards philosophy, okay? And note, when you're, when you're historian and your chemist, if they, if they took up that second order critical perspective of their disciplines, that more philosophical attitude to ask, what do we have to do with each other? They wouldn't be making new discoveries in history that way, right? By taking that stance, they wouldn't find out, oh, it turns out Napoleon didn't win at Auschwitz after all, or something like that, or, oh, it turns out, like, you know, valences are different than we expected them to be, or something like that, right? It wouldn't add discoveries to the disciplines, but it would make sense of them in the sense of having a sense of how they are coming together to tell a coherent story about the world. Okay. And so, if you now keep that going, right? So let's say we take our we take our perspective of history and chemistry, and we step outside of them and ask, what do they have to do with each other? Taking this higher order perspective, and then we do the same same thing with say like biology and sociology. I'm just picking, okay. And then and then now we have like these two higher order perspectives, and we might say, well, what are those two views now have to do with each other? So now what have we done? We've gone to another level of abstraction, okay? And in Seller's view, at the ideal limit of that, you would have this, this picture of the whole. How does it all fit together? And for him, that would be the philosophical perspective. That's what philosophers trying to do, okay? Now, I think there's inherently a problem there now because at each step, what do we have to do? We have to like take our assumptions, our methods, right? that we need to do our intellectual business, and we had to kind of put them in a kind of question, right? We had to put them under a microscope, put them under critical uh, testing and things like that to see how they fit into other things. Well, at each level, what are we doing? We're, we're like doing that from a higher level perspective, right? But when you get to philosophy, right, philosophy is gonna be constantly putting itself into question, right? Uh, but it doesn't have a higher level thing to go look to to check itself against, okay? So there is always going to be this kind of slippery thing about philosophy, right? It's the thing that criticizes everything, including itself, right? Okay, so there's 
there's this sort of sense in philosophy that we always kind of end up back at our beginnings. We're always looking back, we're always looking back, we're looking back, right? Um, so for sellers, and I think this is interesting, whether or not that can be completed is itself a philosophical question, right? It's sort of a philosophy of philosophy question. All right. Um, I'm less worried about that tonight. I think that's another worry. I'm, I'm, I'm going to take another direction here. Okay. But what I want you to see first is what Sellers does by defining philosophy in this way is very much akin to what I think um, the Greek philosophers were up to. Especially Plato, especially Aristotle. All right. If you were to read um, the Greek tragedies, okay, if you were to have a look at, say, like Aeschylus's *Agamemnon*, all right, and, and if you're not familiar with that, um, I, I encourage you to become familiar with that. All right. <laughs> um, but the problem, the problem in Aeschylus's trilogy, of which *Agamemnon* is the first one, is that all the characters are called on by many gods, okay? Like the whole thing starts out because Agamemnon has certain allegiances that commit him to the Trojan War, all right? And, and then before he can go fight the Trojan War, he's got to launch his ships, all right? And a goddess, right, who's alive with Troy, won't give him the wind unless he sacrifices his daughter, okay? So to satisfy one god, he's got to go fight this war, but to get it off the ground, he's got to satisfy another god, and they don't see eye to eye, so he sacrifices his daughter, he goes and fights the war. Uh, at the, the Greeks win, he's one of the only ones that comes back, so he's his victor. But of course, Mrs. Agamemnon is not happy now, and the god has told her she's got to kill him. Okay, all right, um, you, you see this. And then, and then so she kills him, and now another god tells her son that he's got to kill her now. Okay, so he kills her, and then like other gods, the fates are after him, and it's this cycle, okay? Now, and of course, it's drama, it's metaphor, but what is a metaphor for? It's that there is not a coherent picture of the world that they had to operate by at this point, right? They saw themselves as always like looking at the world from one among many possible perspectives, and there was no way to mediate, right? Uh, no way to put it together and how it hung together, okay? At least that's my, that's my read on the, the tragic view of the world. And what you have in, in, in Plato and Aristotle, especially in Plato, you know, you know, so much of what Plato, in you know, many places in Plato's writings, he, he, come, he says, you know, we've got to like, get these tragic poets out, right? Okay. And why? Because he thinks the only way we can, we can like, overcome this problem, this cycle of incoherence, right, is if we have a single unifying perspective on things, right? that we have a sense of how everything hangs together right, under a single systematic view. So, when, so, I, so I, the way I read Seller's view on philosophy, what I find so interesting about it, is I think it's a very concise statement of how like, the very founders in the West of the discipline thought about it. Right? And I think you can see Sellers here is giving us um, you know, the age-old answer of the philosopher to the tragic problem. Okay. All right, now, so what I, as we'll see, though, uh, Sellers has a very specific way of casting the problem. So I want to talk about two senses of hanging together, okay? Two senses in which we can make sense of things. All right. On the one hand, we have what I'll call a normative or a personal explanation, okay? So for example, if I say, I believe in the multiverse 
because of the, the evidence in the astrophysics universe. Okay. In that case, what I'm saying is, like I'm explaining my stance, I'm explaining my view, right? That there is a multiverse, okay, in terms of reasons, right? In terms of there's certain things said in this literature, right? I've assessed those things, right? And given certain laws of logic or induction, what have you, I'm coming to the conclusion that indeed that's the case, okay? And when I, when I give that explanation, when I say I believe that because of the things in the literature, I'm endorsing it, right? I'm making the claim it's likely true, okay? Does that make sense, all right? Um, sellers will call this a personal explanation, right? This is also the sort of thing if, you know, my, my son Cormac leaves for swim practice early, and I say, Cormac, why did you leave for swim practice early, right? What I'm expecting to give me is some kind of reasons for it, right? Some explanation of his action that makes sense in terms of an inference, you know, from, you know, like a, a good to like a way of achieving it. Like I wanted to have more time with my buddies, so I left early, okay? I'm, he's making sense of his action in terms of a process of reason there, okay? And I think this is, and, and sellers will say this, this is more or less how we experience ourselves, right? As doing things in a space of reasons, right? Doing things as persons. On the other hand, we could say, or we go with what I'll call causal or impersonal explanation. So if I say Smitty believes in the multiverse because he's been drinking cough syrup all day, okay? In that case, I'm, I'm not endorsing Smitty's view of the, 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 of the multiverse there, right? Whether it's true or false, there has nothing to do with it, right? I'm just saying certain underlying physical processes, right, the, the active ingredients in the cough syrup, have caused him for not irrational, but non-rational reasons to come to this conclusion. Do you see that? Okay, so what, like Smitty, even if he's been <laughs> reading the astrophysics literature, <laughs> right? Or even, even if like he thinks like the aliens told him or something, right? What I'm saying is his surface sense of what's going on there is not what's really going on, right? There's something going on behind the scenes, namely these chemicals are at work that explain what he's done, right? <clears throat> Like somebody might have an explanation, but if I know he's been drinking cough syrup all morning, I'll say, ah, I know better why he did it, right? It's the cough syrup. It's not what he cites as the reasons. Okay. Um, and that's what we would call an impersonal explanation. It's merely causal. Okay. Now, Sellers, uh, in his explanation of what philosophy is, he actually thinks that the, norm, the notion of normative explanation the notion of causal explanation are very important for how we're going to say things hang together overall. Okay, so I'm going to quote Sellers again. The philosopher is confronted not by one complex, many-dimensional picture, the unity of which, such as it is, he must come to appreciate, but by two pictures of essentially the same order of complexity each of which purports to be a complete picture of man in the world, and which, after separate scrutiny, he must fuse into one vision." Okay, end quote. So what Sellers is saying here is he's saying, when, when we look at the world now, and we have to figure out, okay, if we're going to play philosophy, how can we have a unified picture of the world? He thinks we're really confronted by two very, very basic, complete pictures of the world that are seemingly incompatible, 
Okay? So he doesn't see like our problem is this sort of like ancient polytheism where we have this like swirl of competing things. He thinks it all comes down to one of two perspectives on the world. He thinks it's always been that way. Okay. And he thinks the problem is, is they both claim not to have a corner of what reality is. They both claim to have the whole of it. All right. So it's almost as if they couldn't both be right. Or that's the word. So what Sellers would say, and they'll use these kinds of examples, is it's not we're, not that we're trying to figure out like how history and chemistry and you know politics and and literature and theology and all these sort of separate like, smaller things fit into a golden picture, right? Okay, he says both of these views would claim to make sense of all of those things, and they make sense of them in very different ways. The one view, what he calls the manifest image, as we'll see in a minute here, right? The manifest image attempts to make sense of everything in terms of personal explanation. Okay? So the manifest image says, I can make sense of how everything hangs together in terms of personal explanation. The whole world. What he's going to call the scientific image tries to make sense of things, how they hang together in the broadest sense, in terms of impersonal explanation. Um, and so Sellers thinks the philosophical task is to figure out which of these is right or how they could come to the same thing, as we'll see. So I really I should have called the, um, the, the lecture the, the Manifest and the Scientific Images of Humanity, but once again, no one would have known what I was talking about. I said Manifest, so I put philosophical. Okay, so. All right, so the Manifest image. That is the worldview through the lens of personal normative explanation, both implicit and explicit. Okay. So, quoting Sellers again, in the early stages of the development of the manifest image, the wind was no longer conceived as acting deliberately, with an end in view, but rather from habit or impulse. Nature became the locus of, locus of truncated persons, that which things could be expected to do, its habits. That which exhibits no order, its impulses. Inanimate things no longer did things in the sense in which the persons do them. Not, however, because a new category of impersonal things and impersonal processes have been achieved, but because the category of person is now applied to the things in a pruned and truncated form." End quote. Okay. What Sellers has in mind here is on his view is the, what he calls the original image by which humans operated is we saw everything in personal categories, right? The wind blew down your house and you wanted to know why did the wind do this? In the same sense, I might ask Cormac, why did you go to swim practice early, right? Like he sees primitive humans as demanding reasons from nature, okay? The flood, you know, ruined my crops, or the flood helped my crops. And I thereby ask the water, why did you do this? Okay. He has in mind here sort of, you know, once again, like polytheistic paganism, right? In his view, what that was, was an interpretation, a total view of the world, wherein everything was explicitly personal in the same way that we're explicitly personal. Everything operated as rational thinking things. And Sellers thinks, though, at one point, there was innovation. And someone said, no, the wind isn't a person, okay? 
the water isn't the person, all right? We're only gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna limit the notion of persons, mainly just to us, okay? But, in Seller's view, in this manifest image, which he thinks most of us walk around the world thinking this way, you still expect there to be a personal explanation of everything in the world, right? Like think of, like, like Job, right, at, at that point in like human development, he, he doesn't think like the whirlwind, the tornado, right, is a conscious thing, right? But he demands that there be a reason, right? He demands of God, right, that there be a reason why the tornado does what it does. Do you, you see the point there? Okay. So what, what Sellers sees the manifest image is, is that we interpret nature as having rational purposes. Okay. It makes sense in a almost, not almost, in a moral way. Right? We can ask of nature, why does it do what it do does? And the answer we'll get is meaningful in a teleological or moral sense. Okay, now, on Sellers' view, we, it's not because we actually think the trees think, okay? But we think that there's a thinking reason behind the trees, okay? And obviously, we think there are thinking reasons behind our own actions, all right? So what, what Sellers sees is like the first big step is that humans decide, okay, we're gonna limit where we apply the concept of person, even though we still We'll look for personal explanations for everything. We're only going to say there's really one clear case of persons, and maybe two, like if, you, if, you, if you're a monotheist, right? Okay. So the way I put it on the handout here in glossing this, um, the manifest image is, is suggestive of religion, at least monotheism, or at least some version of theism as an ultimate norm of explanation. Mm -hmm. so, so the person operating the manifest image looks out on the world and says, no, this all should make sense in the sense of it should make ethical sense. It should be happening for good reasons, okay? And so that we demand of ourselves and our doings good reasons, and we might demand of nature, right, good reasons, and therein we, it lends itself to theism. Okay. And so I say here, consider the case of, of Job, of Job demanding reasons for the world. Okay. Aristotle, interestingly, at one point says, the heavenly bodies are gods, and the divine encompasses the whole of nature. Right? That's Aristotle saying that the whole thing makes sense in a personal sort of way. Right? Also quoting Aristotle, quoting Homer, right? Beings, however, do not wish to be badly governed. To have many rulers is not good, let there be one ruler. Right? And what's that, what's that Aristotle, Aristotle saying is he thinks the whole thing comes under a single reason. But what kind of reason? The kind of reason a ruler governs, right? Okay. Not a personal reason. Okay. That's the manifested. And, and Sellers thinks that is a complete and perfectly coherent way of looking at the world. All right? He's not objecting to this. Though he has this dog in his race, though. Okay, the scientific image. The world viewed through the lens of impersonal or non-normative explanation. Quoting Sellers here. And indeed, what I have referred to as the scientific image of man in the world, in contrast with the manifest image, might be called the postulational or the theoretical image. Okay, end quote. Less than helpful quote, kind of me just proof texting Sellers, so you know I'm not making it up. Okay, so. Um, but the postulational thing, the theoretical thing, is important because what he means by postulate is 
the, the scientific image doesn't operate by how things seem to us in our first order experience. It postulates what's going on behind the scenes. Okay. So for Sellers, the movement to the scientific image, and he doesn't think it happened for the first time in the scientific revolution. We're going to see, I think it's already going on in ancient Greece, right? Is, is with that movement though to the scientific image is when we say, okay, we're, it's not the personal that's running things, it's something impersonal in the background that's running things. It's not what Smitty says grounds his belief, it's the cough syrup that's running in the background that grounds his belief. Do you, do you see that? So the important thing for sellers about the, the scientific image is it's a movement from what is manifest to us as ourselves, as persons, what's manifest to us in nature as purposive, right? To something going on in the background that is not purposive, that is not personal, that is not rational in that sense. Okay. As I put in our handout, though the world manifests itself to us in personal terms, both our internal sense of agency and external sense of purpose in nature, these appearances can be accounted for by unseen impersonal entities and processes on this view. Quoting uh, Galileo, philosophy is written in the great book, uh, the universe, which is always open right before our eyes. Um, but I should say, one cannot understand this book without first learning to understand the language and to know the characters uh, in which it is written. It is written in the language of mathematics, and the characters are triangles, circles, and other figures. Without these, one cannot understand a single word of it, and just wanders in a dark labyrinth. Quoting Robert Brandom about Galileo, sorry about that. Galileo produces a massively effective way of conceiving physical reality, in which periods of time appear as lengths of lines and accelerations as the areas of triangles. The model of resemblance is of no help in understanding this crucial form of appearance. So what I'm getting at there is like, certainly I, I'm gonna make a case that's already up and running in ancient Greece, but by the, in, the, in, the, in the modern scientific revolution, what's, what's so effective is it sets aside the manifest image and says, no, let's just look at the impersonal processes going on behind the scenes, okay? And by, going, and by looking at those impersonal processes, like leave aside how things look, how things feel, what the meaning of things are. Leave all that aside, and let's look at the things that we can describe mathematically going on behind the scenes, right? And, and the claim then is that we can account for the complete world in those impersonal terms. You see that? Okay. So, according to Galileo again, I believe that the external bodies to excite in us taste odors and sounds, nothing is required in those bodies themselves except size, shape, uh, and say a lot of slow or, or fast motions, namely countless tiny particles. I think that if ears, tongues, and noses were taken away, then shapes, numbers, and motions uh, would well remain, but not odors, tastes, or sounds. The latter are, I believe, nothing but names outside of the living animal. Just a tickling and titillation are nothing but names apart from the armpit and the skin around the nose." Okay, so you know, once again, what's Galileo saying there is like the thing, the, the way the world manifests itself to you in a meaningful way is not the real story. The real story is what's going on under that, below that, at that postulational level of, of pure physics. So the way I put it in the handout is things when we say things like 
The bird's beak is not pointed because it is best for the bird, but the underlying pressure of natural selection, right? That's a movement from the manifest image to the scientific image. The table is not uh, the hard, visible surface you see and are concerned with, but a conglomeration of subatomic particles, right? Move from the manifest image to the scientific image. You only believe that because such thoughts serve the interests of your class, right? That's a movement from the manifest image, and you think you believe this because, no, you believe it because some underlying ideological process. And on Seller's view, this too provides a complete picture of the world. So for Sellers, the challenge, like, like ultimately as we like work our way up the philosophical ladder, what we end up with are these two views. The one, the manifest view that sees the world in terms of a meaningful rationality, and the one that sees the world in a law-governed causal rationality. And his view, they both cover the whole thing. And he doesn't, he doesn't think there's like an internal problem. Or at least at this point, he's asking. All right, so as I put in the handout, we are faced then, according to Sellers, with two different and prima facie incompatible versions of how the world hangs together. That is, two total accountings uh, of man in the world, one in personal terms and one in impersonal terms. For Sellers, on their own terms, it seems that each vision is complete and self-sufficient. So then we have a choice as sellers. Okay. On the one hand, we can prior prioritize the manifest over the scientific age. That is, the real world is the personal normative world. The scientific image is a mere appearance or abstraction from the manifest image. Science is merely pragmatic or technological. Okay. So on that view, what you're going to say is, no, the real world is this one that we're all in here giving reasons in that we can see here, touch, feel, smell, that we, we're concerned with, okay, where we have personal agency, all that. That's the real world. And the scientific world is just a shorthand for predicting and controlling that, okay? So I'm, if you take this route, you're gonna say, there really aren't such things as electrons. You're gonna say, all electrons are, are a metaphor for talking about mathematics that allow us to predict things, okay? It's generally a position called scientific anti it faces a challenge because it's sort of like, well, then why the heck did the predictions work so well if the things it postulates don't exist? Okay, that, it, it has its own characteristic problem. Okay. On the other hand, you can prioritize the scientific over the manifest image. So that is, the real world is the impersonal non-normative. The manifest image is a mere appearance or an abstraction from the scientific image. The manifest image is merely pragmatic, is merely pragmatic, a useful fiction. Right? So if you if you prioritize the manifest over the scientific, you're saying science is a useful fiction. Right? If you prioritize the scientific or the manifest, then you're going to say our our manifest way, our personal way around the world is just a useful fiction. It gets us around, but it's really an illusion. Or a synthesis. You could synthesize the scientific and manifest images, which is to say, the dichotomy between the two images is merely apparent. A single account including both images is enough. Now, I want to get to like looking at the worth of those three strategies, right? Okay. But I want to I go back and look at some Plato here. All right. 
In um, Plato's dialogue, the Phaedo, okay, maybe like some of you had a philosophy class that read something. And at a certain point, so the, the, the Phaedo is uh, a dialogue. It's, it's, it's the day that Socrates is to be put to death in prison, right? And uh, all the guys come to say goodbye. And Socrates is oddly chipper about this. He's like all excited to die, right? <laughs> and then like philosophy breaks out. Okay. And there, there are sort of various arguments as to why a philosopher should look forward to his or her death, okay? And what happens in the dialogue Actually, I just I just did a podcast on that. That was kind of funny. Um, is your it's just this, this cycle? It's like where Socrates proposes an argument, and everybody gets convinced by it, and it's revealed as being a pretty bad argument. Okay. And then Socrates like, okay, let me try another one, right? And he brings out another argument, and then it gets it's like you, you find yourself getting hooked, and then what happens? The guy's like, yeah, but I don't think it works. Like, yeah, darn, it doesn't work. Okay. And then you go through this like three, four times. And then at a certain point, the fellows start to despair, right? Like, oh my gosh, we're not getting anywhere. Maybe we can't know this. And then, and then Socrates then says, well, we have to be careful with mythology, right? And he's, and he's playing on the notion of misanthropy, right? Hatred of humans. He says, what happens to a lot of people is they meet some people, they go out in the world, and those people turn out to be not so nice, right? And they meet some more people, they try again, and those people turn out to be not so nice. And after a couple of trips are there, they just sort of say, I hate humanity, right? Okay? And then Socrates is like, yeah, but if you do that, then you might miss out on the possibility of there being some decent humans, right? Okay, so he's like, don't quit on humanity so quickly. And he says, likewise, hey, we're like, we're going through these arguments, they keep going, they keep falling, they keep falling, they keep falling, we're not getting anywhere. But if you despair, you miss out on the possibility that we might get somewhere, okay? And so I think for what we're talking about, I think it's important that this comes up for Socrates after he gives him that advice, okay? And then he tears right into giving his own intellectual autobiography, okay? It's like, it's like, hey guys, don't worry, I've been through it too, okay? And so the first bullet point here is the first step in Socrates' intellectual autobiography. He says, when I was a young man, I was wonderfully keen on that wisdom which they call natural science. For I thought it's splendid to know the causes of everything, and why it comes to be, and why it perishes, and why it exists. That I am far by Zeus from believing that I know the cause of any of those things. Okay, so what does he do? Like, it, it seems that what Socrates says, when I was young, I accounted for the world in terms of the scientific image. Right? Like, in, in, the, in the part I've left out there, he talks about, yeah, so you know, some of the people said, you know, we can account for everything in terms of like, the proportions of air, air, water, and fire, like quaint ancient Greek chemistry, right? Okay, and some people said we can like account for the position of the sun in terms of like the relative weight of fire or whatever to the water, like kind of quaint, you know, ancient Greek uh, physics and astronomy. You see that? And he says, but I came to despair that that was actually going to answer my questions. Okay, so it seems like what he's saying here is, yeah, I went for the scientific image, and it did really give me everything I needed. Okay, All right now, and we'll get into what, what he thinks is missing in a minute. Then next step in the autobiography, he says, quote, I thought that if this were so, the directing mind would direct everything and arrange each thing in a way that was best. If one wished to know the cause of each thing, why it comes to be or perishes or exists, one, one had to find what was the best way for it to be or to be acted upon or to act. On these premises, then, it befitted a man to investigate only. And about this and other things, what is best? 
This wonderful hope was dashed as I went on reading and saw that the man made no use of mind, nor gave it any responsibility for the management of things, but mentioned as causes air and ether and water and many other strange things. So what's the next step in his autobiography? He goes from the scientific image to full-on manifest image, right? I'm going to account for the whole world in terms of, or he reads another view, right? Anaxagoras. And Anaxagoras says, uh, I'll account for the whole thing in terms of mind, right? Like things being for the best, all right? And he says, oh, I, I like that. That seems like it would answer the questions that I couldn't get answered by the scientific image. But then when you ask that guy to actually explain anything, he just had to fall back into talk about the earth, air, water, and fire. Okay, so I think what Sophie's is saying here is, if you just have the manifest image, and you say, okay, why does that happen? Well, because it's really good that it happened. All right? At some point, you're just going to end up saying, well, things just happen because they happen for the best. Right? It's sort of like if you say things happen because that's what God wants or something like that, and that becomes your only explanation, that's the explanation for everything, so then you've just rendered your explanation true. Do you see it? So what I think what he's saying here is if all you had in your toolbox was the, was the manifest image, you don't really end up explaining the minutia of the universe. Okay. Do you, do you see that? All right. Now, look at the last quotation from the fatal here. Quoting uh, Socrates, I guess Plato for Socrates. Again, he would mention other such causes as my talking to you sounds and air and hearing and a thousand other such things, but he would neglect to mention true causes that after the Athenians decided it was better to condemn me, for this reason it seems best to me to sit here and more right to remain and to endure whatever penalty they ordered. For by the dog, I love, I love that one. I think these sinews and bones could long ago have been in uh, Megara or among the Boeteans, taken there uh, by my belief as to the best course if I had not thought it more right and honorable to endure whatever penalty this city ordered, rather than escape and run away. Okay, yeah, cool. So what's going on? So, backstory, Socrates could have could have escaped prison and no one would have cared, right? His guys like bribed the right people, like the rich kids of Athens, right? They bribed the right people. Nobody wanted to kill this guy anyway. He kind of went out of his way to make it happen. All right, it's very weird, okay. Um, and so, they're like, at one point, they're like, Socrates, go on, man. No one cares. And he decides to stay because he's like, well, no. Athens raised me. I owe it to Athens not to cause disorder in the city, whatever they're going to do to me, so I'm going to stay. Okay, now, what, he, what is he saying here in this passage is, well, sure, I wouldn't be sitting here if my bones and earth and air and water and fire weren't in the right position, et cetera, et cetera. Okay? But if I say that's the full explanation of it, it just misses the fact that, no, I'm acting for reasons, too, right? I'm acting because it's best, okay? So what I think what's going on here is, is Plato is saying we've got a problem, right? On the one hand, if we say manifest image, that's the complete picture of the world, we end up in trivialities. Like we, we, get, we get a picture of the world that doesn't connect to the real concrete world that, that we have to explain, right? So like the, it's saying we're going to exclusively go with the manifest image, he's going to say we're going to get right. If we go in just with the scientific image, we're going to eliminate ourselves as agents, right? But it seems like we have to be agents in order to do the science. Like science is a kind of reasons given, right? When I do science, I'm like I'm holding myself to the norms, right? 
I'm holding myself to standards. I'm holding myself to reason and logic, right? So the idea that the scientific image is the, is the whole picture doesn't, or it's famously hard to see how that's coherent with the idea that we're doing science. Okay. So it looks like for Plato, picking one image over the other is really a non-starter. We can't do it. They both have inherent problems, right? And I'm not sure anyone's done better on those problems in the intervening, you know, millennium. All right, now, it, interestingly, Plato is aware of this, okay? And in another dialogue called the Timaeus, right? The one no one reads anymore, but I wish you would. Okay, so I'm, I'm here, I'm doing an advertising in the Timaeus. I'll be selling copies or notes. <laughs> Should have thought of that, right? Okay. Go to my website. All right. Okay, so in the Timaeus, the main speaker is, interestingly, it's not Socrates. It's a guy named Timaeus. Okay. And um, Socrates comes to him with questions. And his way of answering these questions is he tells us three creation myths. And it's interesting, he calls them myths. He says, I'm not sure of this. They're likely stories or likely myths, depending on your translation. Probabilities. Okay. Now, here's his first myth. Quoting Timaeus in Plato's Timaeus. So it is right that in these matters you should accept a likely myth and look no further than this. Now, let us state the reason why becoming and the universe were framed by him who framed them. He was good, and what is good never has any particle of envy. It is unlawful for the best to produce anything but the most beautiful. So he established one heaven only, round and moving solitary, but because of its excellence, needing no company other than itself, and satisfied to be its own acquaintance and friend. His creation, then, for all these reasons, was a blessed God. Okay. That, I think, is Plato having Timaeus give us an account of the world in terms of the manifest image. Right? His whole answer uh, to why, why, like he says, like, why, why do the planets go in a circular motion? Well, because the circle is the perfect shape, and a perfect being is behind the universe, right? It's, it's all about the, the ethical reasons behind it. At a certain point, you get in the Timaeus, you get three accounts of the creation of the human head, right? Okay, and in the first myth, the human head is round. Why? Because it's, it's like the most perfect thing in the terrestrial realm, right? That's where the human thinking goes on, and it should be round-ish, right? Like, divinity is round-ish, okay? But, but notice, like, Timaeus will say this is ultimately unsatisfying because all I've said to you is, well, all of this stuff goes on because it's like, it's the best. Okay, but why, right? And you just get this appeal to the best. It's the best. It's good. It's good. It's good. But we don't really get much of an explanation. So Timaeus says, ah, I'm going to have to do another one. I'm going to get another one. Okay. According to Timaeus and Plato's Timaeus. Intelligence ruled over necessity by persuading it to lead most of things that come about to the best result. And it was by this submission of necessity to reasonable persuasion that this universe here was originally constituted as it is. So, so that to give a true account of how it came to be in these principles, one must mix in the kind of wandering cause and how it is, it, how it is its nature to cause motion. We must therefore retrace our steps and find another suitable principle for the part of our story and begin again from the beginning. And what he does there is he start, he gives us another myth, and this time it's all earth, air, water, and fire. Which actually starts out like you had triangles, then triangles like get together, 
is shaped the right way. You get fire out of that, it's shaped the right way. You get earth out of that. And I, and I think Plato is like, just, he knows he's making that up, right? It's a myth, okay? But what's he doing? He's giving you a myth entirely in the scientific image. But he comes into that and he's like, yeah, but that's not terribly satisfying, right? Because there's no sense of us in this as agents. So then what do we do? We get a third myth, all right? All these things were naturally so constituted of necessity. And the maker of what is fairest invest among things that come into being took them over when he generated the self-sufficient and most complete God, using this type of cause as subordinate but himself contriving the good in things that come to be. You must therefore distinguish two types of cause, the necessary and the divine. The two types of cause which, like timber for the carpenter, are needed by us to construct the rest of our account, have now been prepared. Let us therefore briefly return to our starting point and retrace our steps that led us to the point we have now once more reached, and then attempt to fit an end and a head to our myth one that is in harmony with what we have said until now. So we get a third myth. And we actually get a third account of how the human head came about, right? Okay, in this one, it, it, it's basically, you know, mostly a biological story. It's like, well, the head needs to be up here to do certain types of work, right? For humans, not in a Darwinian way, but like in a sort of survival way. Okay, so it has to have the eyes in a certain position. It's got to have a certain shape and stuff like that. And then he says, but also it should be on top of the body because that's the most dignified work and in a good universe, the dignified thing would have the highest place. So what's he doing? He's trying to give you a mixed account, right? A mixed account on the one side of the scientific image and the other side of the manifesto. Okay. Do you see that? Now, what's interesting, Plato, I don't think he's saying he has that account because he calls it a myth, right? Uh, but I think he's saying we would not be intellectually satisfied unless we had such an account, an account that incorporated both of those things. And what I see like the philosophical problem is, is okay, what the heck is that? Like what would it be to have the, the, a sense of how things in the broadest sense hang together in the broadest sense? It would be able to give that account of the scientific image and the manifest image, not in competition, but as a synthetic account of the same thing. And there are, you know, different ways this has been attempted. Like one thing, what I might call dualism, right, is to say that the normative and the personal and the non-normative and the impersonal are distinct, but interacting sources of explanation, right? So sometimes you've got manifest stuff going on over here, scientific stuff going on over here, and sometimes the manifest stuff pokes its finger in there and moves stuff around, right, and vice versa, okay? The problem there is both views seem to be complete, right? They don't need something from the outside coming in. And so I think that kind of interactive dualistic account, famously, like throughout history, has been problematic. Okay? Like already Aristotle is pushing back against that uh, when, he, when he takes up this problem. Okay? Another way that this has typically been dealt with all right, is this idea that there's just two truths. There's just, we need both. We need the manifest and the scientific. And there's no way of fitting them together, so we just basically live two lives. right? Uh, I would say that's to go back to the risk of tragedy, right? Right. If we have two accounts, we've, we've got two gods. They're going to make conflicting demands on us, and uh, therein lies, like you know, deep, serious problems. Right? Okay. The third possibility, oddly the one I might prefer, uh, but I didn't know on the handout, right? Is I, what I think Plato was actually up to. 
I think for Plato, uh, what he's suggesting in the Timaeus is that we need to see the scientific image as something like a symbol, a sign, a language that expresses the manifestation. Right? So what Plato does with this final account of like the creation of the human head is he's not saying he, like Plato's creator God like got in there and like monkeyed with the bones to get the head, right? What he's saying is the head, if you can interpret it the right way, is a symbol. It's a poem expressing right? this sort of manifest of it. And many philosophers have like gone that track. So uh, how to, like, to, to weigh in there, though, like seriously, is to, like, to weigh in on, on the entire history of philosophy. But um, I thought I would help your future lecturers by giving you a sense of what philosophers are actually up to. So, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.tomisticinstitute.org slash donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.